FarmEd is the centre for farm and food education based here in the Cotswolds. Our mission is to promote regenerative agriculture and sustainable food systems through knowledge exchange, education, events, research and personal development. Our audience is broad, it is you, it is everyone, from children to families to farmers, local communities, chefs, policy makers, agronomists, influencers. We want to see you all here at FarmEd. So, hope you enjoy the podcast. Find us on social media, take a look at our website and come and join us soon at Farm Ed. Welcome to episode seven of the Farm Ed podcast. This week we're exploring the wonderful world of local food, production, the routes to market, food service and catering industry, and a number of fascinating individual stories around COVID, how we've responded and hopefully how we're bouncing back. This week round the table, we're joined by Nick Pullen of the Wild Time Restaurant in Chipping Norton, James Butterworth of the Cotswold Market Garden, Ali Merza of the Cotswold Made Company, and Ian Wilkinson, founder of FarmEd and local food champion. Welcome, chaps. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> um, COVID, we are slowly easing. We're hopefully coming out the other side, but it's been a a challenge for all of us in many, many ways. Could we just go quickly round the table, explain who you are, your business, and a little bit about how COVID really impacted on you and your food business? Maybe starting, well, start at the beginning with production, James. So uh, I'm James uh, and I founded this year or last year, uh, Cotswold Market Garden in partnership uh, with you, John T, and your farm. Uh, so we're a three-acre market garden at Conagree Farm uh, in Oldsworth. We grow around 50 uh, different types of crops and roughly half of what we grow is sold directly to VegBox customers within 10 miles of the farm and the other half is sold wholesale to retailers and uh, currently one restaurant. Um, In terms of uh, for me, COVID was, was quite strange because I was launching the business at exactly the time COVID started. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was less a question of, um, you know, having to adapt or make up for lost income or anything like that and just, and just try and make the most of the opportunity, really. Um, there was a lot more attention on local food, on food security, um, on cooking um, rather than eating out. And as a sort of startup business specializing in high quality organic vegetables locally, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't too much of a problem, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, yeah. The only thing really was that I'd planned to launch um, into, into some pubs and, and restaurants, uh, particularly with gr- growing our mixed salads. Um, and that sort of didn't happen, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had to adapt slightly. But mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things, it's a very minor uh, impact on the business, okay. uh, and that will come, I'm sure. So, uh, so some years. impacts, but opportunities too. And you, yeah, yeah. From, from from the from the producer's perspective, or um, Cotswold Market Gardens' perspective in particular, there were only really opportunities. Yeah. And farming and food production continued, and yeah, that's great. Can we, um, Ali, can I turn to you, think a little bit more about Roots to Market? Can you tell us who you are and your innovative Route to Market here in the Cotswolds? 
Oh, sure. Um, we're Cotswold Made. We started just as lockdown happened, a mobile farm shop. Uh, we converted a 1950s caravan called Hetty um, into, into a local shop. A we, beautiful thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we like to think so. <laughs> uh, we approached Cotswold District Council um, and said, look, we would like to do this sooner rather than later because people won't be able to get to shops and the hazards that go with that. Um, they were fantastic. Cotswold District Council issued us a license within seven days. Um, all the due diligence with police, highways, um, each of the parish councils that we targeted was done within two weeks. Um, we obviously had to go through certain um, hoops to ensure that we were COVID. We understood the implications to our business and how we handled food, how we handled our customers, the distances we need to keep, the signage that we needed to have to ensure that they were protected. Um, and we launched. And we launched into 13 villages. And to be quite honest, the, the, the feedback we got from locals was, thank God you're here. And I've never met so many of my neighbours in the five years or ten years I've lived yeah. here. Yeah. So a sense of community emerged instantly overnight. Until yesterday, I was in a village and somebody said, thank you so much that I've made so many new friends since you coming to our village. <laughs> I didn't even know they were here. So the impact was, of course, financially, it was, it was, it was solid. Um, and part of our argument to the, the council was as well, we have these small artisanal supply, suppliers. Um, they need to sell product. Now, most of the shops that they would ordinarily sell in are locked down. They don't have a route. So at least we can provide some buffer and some cushion for the stock that's sitting in their warehouses and their stores and give them something to do, to be quite honest, um, which you know, the feedback from suppliers was incredible because we were selling product that ordinarily they weren't able to sell or wouldn't have been able to sell. So over the three months of lockdown, you know, business was great. I mean, we on average served about 500 households um, and got a database of about 300 of people who want information on a weekly basis um, who want to continue to support us and the local producers. And out of interest, what were your biggest sellers? What were people hunting for? Meat, mm -hmm. cheese, vegetables, yeah, um, and for then all the pickles, chutneys, yeah. jams, and, and that's all locally produced. And yeah. everything is yeah. local within yeah. the Cotswold boundary. We yeah. go, we don't take one foot out the Cotswold district. Yeah, Ian. So I've got a question, Ali. I'd like to know what. Um, so you, the suppliers of this produce, the meat, cheese, etc., um, were they middlemen? if you know what I mean, or were these primary producers like James? All producers. We haven't gone to any middlemen. Mm. None at all. That's great. So the it? profits are going directly to them and we're paying them a decent price. We settle their bills within 24, 48 hours, even though we've been given 30-day terms. If we've sold the product, we'll sell it. Well, James, yeah, well, I can, I can, I can confirm that. He, he does pay his bill quickly. Yeah, yeah <laughs> the quickest, actually. Yeah. Again, I, I can vouch that I had probably the best red Leicester cheese I ever had from, from, from Hetty. It was wonderful, absolutely good, wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, again, very positive. Um, Nick, maybe a different story at the catering hand. Uh, tell us about your yeah, story. Yeah, very much so, a different yeah. story. Um, we were hit by the COVID crisis quite dramatically, and uh, we had to close, like many other restaurants in our, in our sector. And uh, we've just had to try and survive and do the best. We've been cooking for a local food bank um, to provide meals for the needy during this time, uh, which has gone well. 
Uh, we've also started doing a takeaway uh, on a Friday. Initially started on a Saturday, we're doing now do it on a Friday. Uh, and that's been going really well, really popular amongst our um, regulars and so on. Uh, and we do hope to open again, but it will be in a different guise than what it was before. Because okay. um, one thing COVID has done is just given us, my, my wife Sally and I, an opportunity to reevaluate, right. which I think a lot of people uh, have had to do in this time. It's, it's given us, although it has been a crisis, it's also enabled us to reevaluate yeah. and try and think of another business idea. Um, which we can run for now, existing building. Yeah, so that's probably the positive for you is that time and space, which you never get yes. in a catering setting. Yeah, and and family time too. It's yeah. given us some quality family time, yeah. which is um, real eye-opener okay. as a cook. Yeah. So thinking about what next for us all, and yeah, start, maybe Ian, yeah, you've got some ideas what you'd like to do at local level and building from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, for me, I've, I, I mean, I think pre, you know, pre-pandemic, I, I, I'd always thought that um, our, you know, food security is dependent on massive food chains from around the world. And, you know, when you, you know, you just sort of come down to basic facts, we, we have, you know, on the one hand, this amazingly brilliant system, but on the other, you know, it's brilliant on the one hand and on the other side of that coin is actually quite, you know, destructive and um, <clears throat> concentrates money in the hands of a few. And I feel that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, time for fairly radical change and I'm not quite sure what that looks like yet but I feel that um, you know we need to start at the ground and work up so for me you know as an agriculturalist I've always thought about soils growing things so plants and animals and uh, you know from there comes the food and so I've been uh, you know for probably the last decade thinking and working around areas uh, uh, you know trying to make links between the primary production uh, that we've heard uh, you know spoken here about uh, you know James's experience and how we get that to local people to consume so I'm thinking very much around you know a circular economy a very short supply chain how we can get it to people without it traveling a long way and without much wastage so I know these are all things that people are all very aware of doing it is much more difficult than than just thinking about it so um, it's a massive challenge and um, you know I fully accept that it's uh, not going to be easy and it may be almost too difficult. Having said all that, you know, we've cracked difficult things. If we put a man on the moon, we can put a person, you know, we can, can put we a, develop a, a local a, food a system. system. <laughs> you know, I, I, so I don't accept that we can't do it. I just, you know, have to, you know, being, uh, you know, pragmatic, mm. uh, accept that it's going to take a little time. But so for me, um, Farm Ed was about, you know, promoting uh, a farming system that would produce nutritionally dense food in sympathetic ways with its environment for the benefit of you know all of the humans that feed off it because it as you know is affecting so much land you know three quarters of the countryside is farmed land so it has a huge impact on biodiversity water quality carbon uh, in the atmosphere and so on in addition to that we are taking food from it so it seems to me that the um, you know the the the, the really uh, biggest challenge that we will face is finding a food system that can you know truly be uh, seasonal local uh, you know, I'm thinking on county levels, I'm not thinking about parishes, I'm thinking a little bit bigger than that. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, but I do believe that we can grow a huge amount in this country if we put our minds to it. And farmers are so flexible and so adaptive to change that they react very quickly. Um, and so I'm trying to find ways of, you know, encouraging that And change. is that through collaboration? Is that the key? Yeah, I think so, because, um, 
you know, clearly there's a lot of people with similar views. Um, and I think if we're collaborating together, we need a lot of, uh, you know, we need many, many thousands of businesses, small micro businesses thinking together a little bit like the web, you know, you're mm. very strong together in isolation. You're actually quite weak and it won't happen. So I'm hoping that there'll be tens of thousands of people like us, you know, within the food sector, uh, whether it's primary production, uh, post-production or actually eating the food, making decisions around supporting um, you know, local initiatives for uh, primary produce. So regenerative farming, of course, top of my list, as you mm. know, uh, is, is key to this. Um, but I think that so many people now looking for what, you know, what is the future? And it has to be quite a radical future because just fiddling at the margins mm -hmm. doesn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's got to be bottom up, I guess, as well. And uh, turning back to James, um, what's next for Cotswold Market Garden? Is it further COVID responses or is it more just general growth? Uh, well, there certainly is general growth. Um, I mean, this being our first year, we're roughly at 25% of, um, of capacity in terms of what we can grow. Um, so that will grow over the next, next few years. Um, for, for a business, for a, a, a business on three acres, um, maximising the amount of money that can be earned off every square inch is, is very, very important. Um, and I think counterintuitive, well, when I started out, I, I assumed that the best way to, to make um, the most amount of money from three acres was to sell everything direct to consumers right. the, um, through a veg box scheme, for example. But I, I've definitely learned that while that's part of it, um, developing a certain amount, number of products for wholesale, uh, whether that be for restaurants or for, or for retailers, um, can actually uh, complement that very, very well. And, and actually having the wholesale and the direct-to-consumer yeah. together um, is, is very valuable um, in terms of resilience. Yeah. Just that multi-channel thing and exactly. having yeah, mixed enterprises, which I've always said is key to, 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 to any resilient business, yeah. whether it's farming or retail. Um, Nick, what's next for you? You've got probably the biggest challenge. Ahead. Yeah, very much so. Um, we hope to open a business where we can um, have a more of a function style business. So groups together like families, like at the moment, but I think it's only two households can come together. Wow. I think you can do weddings up to 30 people and things like that. We're going down that route. We hope to do like um, supper clubs okay. and things like that for our locals. So we don't really want to cut those off, but it will be very much something that you would book in advance. Uh, we'd have a three month program. You, yeah, we put that online, obviously, and people can look at that and book up as you go along. So that again, takes care of our, well, to a certain extent, takes care of our costs and controls the business more than before. Before, it always felt like the big business not only controlled us too much, yeah. uh, but everything was out of kilter yeah. when it come, came to cost. So going down this road again through the re-evaluation mm -hmm. of having more set star menus where people can choose, mm -hmm. um, we can control it a bit better and keep on top of our costs okay. and everything is much more controlled. Yeah, yeah. Ali, what's next for you and Hetty? Oh, um, <laughs> A few th I actually had a question for you, if I may just yeah, jump in do, and yeah. come back to that. How, how do you think, you know, over the coming months, Brexit's going to happen, yeah. um, number one? How's that going to look like for local farmers? Because surely people are going to be... I, you know, I did a survey seven years ago in London and asked 
over 150 people on the street in Soho and around about what they felt about locally produced goods and what they would pay for them and how they felt about them and what do they feel in supermarkets that were picking up mange tea from Uruguay and Paraguay versus you know, something being local and going and benefiting the local um, producer. And it was incredible. The stats on it were fantastic. 90-odd percent were really wanted to back, and this is seven, eight years ago, wanted to back local farmers. So I wonder whether now, as a, as a result, you know, as, as, as Brexit takes place, the importance of us actually having that communication or what, you know, what you thought about it. That was number one. Number two is the dependencies on farmers um, and how they're squeezed by supermarkets, which yeah. there has to be some pushback, surely. Yeah, well, I think two great questions. I mean, I'm encouraged that you say people <clears throat> want to back um, you know, local farmers. Um, I think we've, we've seen sort of back Britain and all that stuff. That to me feels a bit empire, mm -hmm. um, but I do like the idea of, um, very much like the idea of uh, local produce having provenance. I like the idea of uh, people wanting to support that system. I think the problem at the moment is that people can't support it because it's anonymous, the food is effectively commoditized and you can't, through the big five supermarkets, you can't, you really can't genuinely hand on heart say that you can choose your local food. There are some exceptions, but generally speaking, that isn't the case because it's all homogenised. I think so. I think Brexit might enforce, uh, reinforce the desire to support local, which would be brilliant. So I, yeah, I think it is an opportunity. And I think the, the whole supermarket question is really interesting. I mean, I, I think you know, I you know, we all use supermarkets. We're all demonstrating that because I think 85% of our produce is bought through them, roughly speaking, isn't it? It's a huge, uh, important sector, and they are, you know, in many respects, uh, truly great. But they also, uh, you know, have responsibility to f to fairness and to um, to uh, you know, you were saying farmers are being squeezed. Well, farmers will tell you that they're often squeezed by supermarkets, but of course, supermarkets are also their biggest customer, so they they have to tread a very difficult. Uh, line, uh, you know, road, as it were. I think um, myself that farmers growing food for people to eat. So, if you take, for example, wheat, um, you know, wheat should be grown, you know, on farmland for human consumption, principally, and if where it's possible. And those wheats ideally would be processed by millers in their local districts, and those millers would then supply that flour to um, local bakers. And the local bakers would then supply the local people. And that is, you know, a, a utopia, perhaps. We're a long way from that. But the mills do still exist, just about. There are still, they're still fragmented somewhat, but there's still some there. Um, the artisan baker is rising very quickly. People are valuing um, their skills. I mean, it's a rotten life being a baker, I think, you know, early mornings and not much money. But actually, what a rewarding product. So I think there is scope to see a change but, I, but we are where we are, and um, people are used to low prices. Uh, you know, farmers definitely squeeze. Their farmer gets very little of the money, so the margins are held in, in the middle sector between the food processors and the retailers. Um, so I would much rather see a shorter chain, more money get, given throughout that chain to the different actors in the process. Mm -hmm. I think it's a shame that the farmer doesn't get much. I think it's a shame the miller doesn't get much. You know, big business squeezes a lot of people. I'm not going to let, let Ali get away with this one. I'm going to come back to the question I did ask you. But in the meantime, you mentioned supermarkets. Yeah. One thing they're good at is customer loyalty and keeping people loyal through offers and loyalty cards and 
bonus points, etc. What can we do as small local artisan businesses to help keep our customers loyal? I think, I think you know, brilliant question. But you know, creating a, a local network, you know, exactly like that loyalty card. You know, if it's the Cotswolds, it's mm -hmm. a, a Cotswolds artisanal network mm -hmm. that people know they're buying into that network. Yeah. Yeah. So the the education is done for them, you know, and and they need to be educated. Sorry. You know, we need to teach them that this, you're buying into this and this collective is actually going to be benefiting all of these people. Like when, when I sell James's products, uh, I tell every single person about James, his life, his background, <laughs> you know, the fact he went <laughs> all, of it. all of it. <laughs> you know, 500 households. Five foot, five foot eight. <laughs> you know, they've heard Side your story. You know, yeah. They've heard your story. <laughs> but it's important that pe people feel that connection. As soon as you feel that connection, the game changes. And supermarkets are good at doing it on a mass level, but mm -hmm. do we actually have a loyalty? Mm -hmm. I don't think so anymore. It's like Evios points or Nectar points. Mm -hmm. It's a blind thing that you get at the end of the month or the end of the year, you go, oh, it's Christmas, yeah. I've got £38.52. It doesn't mean a lot. It doesn't mean anything. No. Yeah. And you don't so is it convenience anything. that we need to get better at? How do we funnel and make our local produce more convenient? Surely, absolutely. Convenience has to be number one, mm -hmm. but also the relation. I think it's still that education job is mm -hmm. vital in allowing consumers to feel that they are part of this very local mm -hmm. economy. Yeah, you know. And when you tell people about the jobs it creates, about the households it's producing, you know, the people who are involved in it, the picker, the grower, the mm -hmm. candlestick maker, all of them, it changes everything. Then yeah. they will actually look at it and go, "Well, I could get that in Sainsbury's yeah. for sixty-two p." or I could buy it from you at 90p, mm -hmm. but that 90p that I'm spending, actually, do you know what? A, I'm getting a much better quality product. Mm. It has less food mile from mm -hmm. it. The carbon footprint is completely different. It tastes a lot better. It was picked yesterday morning at 6 a.m. That's got to be worth it. Okay. And it's supporting all of these families. Good Lord. So storytelling crucial. How do we, I quality? Know, yeah, I, I think quality is, is, is one of the, the key parts of, of this. Um, Encouraging people to shop locally, you know, the, the, the people are willing to um, take that message on board and support local businesses and local communities, local growers, producers. But ultimately, I mean, I've found the thing that excites people most is the quality. Mm. Um, sure. And that quality often comes w with the fact that it is local and it's so fresh. Mm -hmm. um, and in general, local producers um, servicing local markets tend to focus on quality mm -hmm. in a way that people shipping their products to wholesalers to the other side of the country or abroad, they don't necessarily, you know, the, the lowest mm -hmm. common denominator, yeah. quality is not there. For me, quality is the thing that, that will bring people in mm -hmm. and stop them from shopping at supermarkets. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, for just one quick example, for the veg boxes today, everybody got celery. This is celery with the leaf still on. You can't buy that in a supermarket. Mm. You can barely buy it in any shop in the country mm -hmm. because um, it makes the celery go off because it's still got the leaf on. Mm. Um, whereas if you're picking it at six o'clock in the morning, delivering it at midday, they yeah. can have the leaf. Yeah. And then they've got double the amount of vegetable for the, pretty much the same price yeah. as they would for an organic celery <laughs> in yeah. the supermarket. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so quality is, is, is hugely yeah, you're important. Right. Yeah. So I, I opened a pop-up farm shop at the start of COVID and everything is fresh and everything is local. That feedback from customers is wonderful. Mm. It's the taste of the tomatoes, the freshness of the chard, it's the, the crispiness of the cucumber and you can actually taste cucumber in a cucumber for the first time. <laughs> And we've got older customers too coming back and saying, this is how our food used to taste. I'm glad you said that, because I always think cucumbers are the most pointless vegetable yes. out. They're just, just water. Something about, now we're on value, and we mentioned a little bit about value and cost here. How do we make this food, wonderful food we're producing locally and selling locally, accessible to everybody? Can it be done? I'm going to go to Nick. <laughs> That's that's the challenge, I think, in many respects, to be able to pull that off. I I can only speak from my experiences and what I believe in, my, what my passion is. And obviously, I'm a chef, and mm. feel to fork mm -hmm. is a dream that I would like to achieve. Mm. So, and quite a difficult thing to achieve, but I think it's possible. There are chefs around the country that have achieved that. Yeah. Simon Rogan up north, you may have heard of him. He has achieved that. He's yeah. a huge sort of network involved in his businesses and is quite self-sufficient. I'd love to be something like that. I bet you can, you can source um, meat and uh, dairy products locally, but can you, can you source fruit and vegetables, which obviously would make up quite a big proportion of your plate? Uh, that's, that's challenging around this part of the world and always has been. We've been you know, in business for 10 years and it's always been difficult to get fresh fruit and vegetables locally. Um, the Vale of Evesham is about the nearest place to get local produce, mm -hmm. relatively local produce, into my business. Mm -hmm. But that's still quite far away. Mm -hmm. um, be nice to have something more local than that, yeah. but definitely. And that's something we're going to work on here at Farmed a little bit, is bringing customers, consumers, communities together and working out where the gaps are in the food chain. And then working mm -hmm. through entrepreneurship workshops and micro-businesses, try and fill those gaps. Yeah. And we need to do that at you know, grassroots level. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think value needs to be redefined mm. as well. Mm. You, know, we, you know, we've gone through the last two, three decades where, you know, obesity is on the rise. Mm -hmm. um, sugary products are being consumed second to none. Yeah. Um, the likes of the big cola companies and are fighting battles to keep taxes off sugar because they know it's going to decimate or hurt their businesses. Mm. So we know all of that bad stuff is happening out there. And consumers need to be taught, actually, if you're going to eat this, this one um, beetroot, this actually, this one beetroot has this much nutrition on it because it came out the ground three hours ago. Mm -hmm. The beetroot that you're getting from Honduras or from South Africa or from New Zealand has been on a ship for the last God knows how long. Mm -hmm. The nutritional value is, is going down. You're eating more to get less nutrition out of it. And again, com coming back to that education, I think, is teaching people that, you know, what you're spending on a meal, getting a, a ready-made takeout version with loads of junk in it, mm -hmm. and the cost to you long-term versus a highly nutritious meal that's a smaller portion, mm -hmm. but my goodness, is it going to be, it's good enough for you. Yeah. That whole system needs to change. You're right, Ali. I, I, I couldn't agree more. The question is how you do it. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's a lifetime, isn't it? It's, it's a lifetime of good habit mm -hmm. that we need to develop. And I think for what, where that comes... Where, we, where, that, where the future lies for that is, is starting with young people, uh, children yeah. in education through their formative years, so this becomes ingrained in their thinking and the way that they eat. I think the problem we've got at the moment is that we 
you know, as, gener we, we, as a generation, we've lost a lot of knowledge. Uh, we have extreme convenience. Cost of food is, you know, as everybody knows, 10% of your, your, your average income. But there's huge discrepancies. I mean, people that are well off eat very badly. Um, you know, I fully understand that there are people that need food at the moment, and that's priority number one because they haven't got the budget to buy it. But there's also the other, you know, sector of society that just chooses badly. So for me, it's everybody, and it's and it starts with uh, children. And if we can get that embedded in the system at a very early age to think as you've described, then we are really onto something long term, and that's where we need to be. That comes down to local communities, doesn't it? If if it doesn't start in the village here, then you know the chance of fighting it across the country is impossible. Yeah. We have to have these little micro-communities that are actually doing something, educating themselves, and then that just that movement grows organically. So do you think we can, in, we can involve, involve um, the community? You know, uh, what I'm trying to say is how, how do we engage you know, farmers, um, GPs with uh, teachers, uh, you know, children? How do we get all those people together? Where, where's the place that that happens? Uh, how, do, how do you get those conversations going? Of course, obviously, I think, personally, and I'll just throw it out there, you do it around food. <laughs> it's obvious, yeah, but, but you know, do you do it in the school? Do you do it on the farms, in the restaurants like yours, Nick? Where do, where do you do it? I think all of the all above. Of the above yeah. It has yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah. It has to be. It can't be just a one trick. It has to be multi-communications coming in from all, all different points, from leaders as well as people who are not leaders, you know, who just are, are curious about things. So we've got to tap into them, we've got to tap into the leaders, and we've got to tap into all of our little communities. And I think we've got to stop thinking, you know, we've got su such into bad habits of thinking globally about everything, that it's time to go, no. All we can do is actually focus on our local, as far as we can see and shout kind of thing. Let's get it really local mm -hmm. and start letting that word spread. And that flies in the face with the current food system that we have, doesn't it? Big food is very different to what we've just been discussing. But that has to be the, you know, if you're going to fight something in that way, it has to be the absolute opposite for somebody to be able to see value, I think. So that brings me nearly to my final question, which is what, are the, what is the one or the two big barriers, and I'll go around the room, what are the barriers we need to uh, break down? Well, I'd say availability. For me, it, you have to start with uh, growing. You start at the soil, grow, grow, the, grow the things to eat mm -hmm. uh, locally, and um, that's where it starts. Okay. And so for me, it's a barrier. Reduce it and grow it. Yeah, We've got exactly. the stuff. What's the next barrier? Distribution. Distribution. Yeah, and that's what, we're, that's what we're going into. That, that's our next big project, is we're going to be taking these, these independents, these artisanal suppliers, and, and getting them the routes to market. Because, mm -hmm. you know, we can, we can have six mobile shops going, but actually... The potential just within the Cotswolds is perhaps 200 odd local shops. Mm. Now these people don't have access to those shops. Nobody is taking their product and selling it in. Now if we could do that, mm -hmm. then suddenly we're creating employment from the producer side. We're creating value locally. People are getting educated about what is good and what is brilliant quality locally available. And we're creating that sustainable wealth creation. You know, and we have to constantly think about that. You know, creating wealth isn't a bad thing especially as we're going to go into massive depression over the next while, recession. You know, we've got to be thinking of sustainability, and it comes back to economics. And distribution has to be that key. Okay. So we'll be setting that up. And can shortly. I play devil's advocate? Yeah. If you're a middleman and a distributor, yeah. how do you make your share, your 30 or 40%, without screwing farmers like Tesco? You don't make 30 or 40%. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, Nick, what's the biggest barrier, do you think, in your sector, and how can we get over it? Um, I was just thinking maybe sourcing with, you know, could be one area which, you know, from my perspective, trying to source as much local produce for my business as possible has always been a challenge, a rewarding one too, because I've found plenty, but the arable side has always been a bit of a challenge. Um, and just, you know, as I said before, reinventing ourselves and getting, getting the front door open again of our business is the biggest challenge, um, to be honest. Um, Okay. Yeah. James, biggest barrier? I think from the vegetable growers' perspective, it's working out the labour issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you've got to build uh, business models that um, are rewarding mm-hmm. um, for for employees. And most of most of most um, people who work in vegetable production. I paid minimum wage or probably less than minimum wage. Yeah, yeah. Um, many of them come in for overseas for seasonal work. Mm. Thinking about how you can build um, financially sustainable local vegetable uh, businesses mm-hmm. that you know um, where people local people can think, oh yeah, I'll go into that, and that mm. this is a, this is a viable career. This is not just a sort of minimum wage job. Um, Mm. You know, making people feel proud to be yeah. working in that in that sector. Yeah. Um, and it's hard work at the end of the it day. It is well. very hard yeah. work, yeah. but um, but the the, the 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 sort of job satisfaction that comes with that, particularly in a small mm. business, I think is is yeah. is, is potentially huge. Yeah. And you've got to really focus on on that side of things. I think. Mm. And I think it comes again back to that value. You know, them being valued in the first instance and. And, and perhaps, and you know, this might be a curveball, but perhaps you know, giving them inclusion within that business. So you're not saying you know, they would own 99 or 100% of it, but right. actually feeling that they're part of something, that they've got, right. you know, again, going back to that job for life thing, I think that you know, if I'm going to participate in this, over the years, as this grows, as success happens, I'm going to be rewarded because I feel this is, this is mine and that sense of ownership and belonging right. is right. so psychologically significant yeah. Yeah. we all want to belong yeah. one, one thing if I may just interject John, I know time's pressing but but it seems to me that the, um, the one of the one of the key problems with what James is describing you know getting workforce mm-hmm. for a seasonal product is solved by mixed farming so you, you you on a mixed farm I can remember them in, when in my early days you know there was a lot of people on the farm doing different tasks throughout the year Yes, it was hard work, but we would work seasonally on different projects, and that was the solution. So that in the winter there were tasks that were done, you know, on areas of the farm that were winter projects. Uh, so you know, firewood, forestry, fibre, that sort of thing. Uh, and in in the summer, you know, the, the vegetables would be a you know different proposition of demanding huge labour. So it's th- that is, yeah, I think, I absolutely the solution. agree with that. Yeah. Ali, the word belonging <laughs> just hit me right between the eyes then, and it reminded me of a conversation we had a few weeks ago. As a person of colour operating in the Cotswolds, have you faced additional barriers and challenges? Yes, <laughs> plenty, plenty. It has been, it has been, um, it has been quite, um, I'd forgotten. Um, <laughs> Sorry to bring it back up. Yeah, I had forgotten that it existed and it has been a massive challenge, um, you know, from being shouted at, putting a leaflet through somebody's front door, um, to being looked at, 
or, or being talked over to my partner, who happens to be um, Caucasian, um, to a whole bunch of different things. Mm. So it has been pretty appalling um, in lots of ways. However, we've got to a point now where the customers that we do have no longer see it. So it's, it's taken time, yeah. but they no, they, they no longer see it. Well, I hope they no longer see it. Um, but it certainly is. I mean, there is very little diversity here. And I, I would imagine, especially in the farming community, there's even less diversity. Uh, yeah. y yes, you're, you're correct. There, there's very little diversity. It is quite stereotype, uh, you know, as you'd expect. Uh, you know, it's an, an, an elderly population of farmers, uh, w often without succession. And um, yeah, we are lacking, we are lacking uh, true representation in the countryside. I think it's something we are well aware of, and uh, I think it's, it will be addressed mm. given enough time. Um, I, think, um, I think it would be much richer for uh, new ideas uh, representing you know, wider society. So I absolutely agree that you know, it's, it's essential to, um, uh, to um, work with all parties, all people, uh, for a much richer future. I think that thing, you know, we talk about regenerative agriculture, it's rebuilding, rebuilding soil, rebuilding habitat, rebuilding communities, but also rebuilding diversity, biodiversity, crop diversity, human diversity, genetic diversity. So it fits in with our remit here too. And we'll be coming back to this in another podcast, which I think I might entitle Belonging, which is wonderful. Thank you. Um, chaps, we've come to an end. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful and, and broad discussion. We've covered an awful lot of ground in 40 minutes. I wish you all the best of luck in your future endeavours. I'm sure we'll be working together again in the future here at FarmEd and around in the farming community. Um, you've been with Nick Pullen of Wild Time Restaurant in Chipping Norton, James Butterworth of Cotswold Market Garden, Ali Mirza of Cotswold Maid, and Ian Wilkinson, founder of FarmEd. I'm John T. Brunye, the manager here at FarmEd. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. The production of this podcast was funded by the Farming the Future Coronavirus Emergency Response Fund. Thank you to the A-Team, Roddick, Samworth and 30 Percy Foundations for your support. <laughs>